as we turn our attention now, would you read with me, starting in Luke 23 and verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. Into your hands I commit. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Well, this season of quarantine has been challenging. But I hope that you've also seen some of the benefits uh, that have been forced upon us during this season. I know that for our family and I've seen for others that there's been a great benefit to the pace of life slowing down. Um, We've gotten to have more time with Jesus, gotten to have more time worshiping together as a family. I've gotten to have more time just hanging out together with our families. Rest is a good thing. Uh, Even when we wouldn't have chosen it otherwise, sometimes it's important to remember just how valuable rest is. Now that's not to say that work and activity are bad things. Uh, They're good things. But it's important that we have a rhythm of rest and work and that we never lose sight of the importance of rest. This morning, I want to encourage you to rest. But I don't want to encourage you to rest from the good work like I was just talking about. I want to encourage you to rest from bad work. I want to encourage you to rest from that work that You want to rest from and then never go back to. Because in our fallen condition as humans, we often put energy into things that are unhealthy. We put energy into things like we work when we're wronged. We work to avenge ourselves. We work to justify ourselves in the sight of others. We work to justify ourselves in the sight of God. We work to take that angst that we feel inside, that regret over sin, that knowledge that we know who we are and what we've done, and we work to fix it, to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. But the gospel has a better word. The gospel invites us to rest, to cease striving, 
to cease those works that we do for ourselves in our own effort that ultimately end up empty and to rest in what Jesus has done for us. So this morning, I wanna invite you to rest. I wanna invite you to rest in three ways. First, rest in the hands of the just and gracious God. Second, rest in the death of the innocent one. And third, rest in the burial of Jesus. So let's look at each one of those. First of all, rest in the hands of the just and gracious God. God was at work at the cross. And we know that now. But even in the moment of Jesus' death, God made it clear to those who were there that he was at work. He made it clear through some supernatural, visible, public signs, acts of God. First, in the form of darkness at what should have been the brightest point of the day, and then also in tearing the curtain in the temple from top to bottom. So in verse 44, we're told that God caused it to uh, cause darkness to come over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That's the, what we would know as noon to 3 p.m. So again, at what, what should have been the brightest point of the day, as an act of God, God supernaturally caused darkness to fall all over uh, this place where Jesus was dying. It was an act of God. In the prophets, darkness like this was associated with the day of the Lord, the end times judgment of God. For instance, in Joel 2, verse 31, Joel writes, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Or the prophet Amos writes in Amos 8, 9, and 10, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. So this darkness was associated. It was a picture of God's judgment. God was symbolizing his judgment with this darkness in a couple of different ways. This darkness would have been an ominous sign to the Jewish people who had been entrusted with the prophets, yet were killing their Messiah. This sign would have been uh, something that would have been ominous and would have been a symbol of the judgment of God on his people who had rejected the Messiah. But there's another sense in which this judgment would, or this sign of darkness would have indicated judgment. Because for those who trust in Jesus, what we recognize is that God was pouring out his judgment that we deserve on Christ as our substitute. He was judged in our place. And so, yes, this was an act of judgment, but it was also an act of grace. So that was one way in which God acted supernaturally and intervened and he gave a public and visible sign. But there's a second act of God in verse 45 as God tears the curtain in the temple in two. 
This also would have been a sign of judgment and grace. First of all, it would have been a sign of judgment in that um, this temple where the curtain was, it, it was at the center of the nation of Israel, and it was the place where God's presence was made known, was revealed, where God dwelt with his people. And so uh, as part of the temple was being destroyed, as part of the temple was being damaged, it was a sign of judgment on this people. Uh, it may also have been a sign as the curtain was torn, it, it may have been that God was symbolically exiting from the temple. Uh, we see something similar to this in the prophet Ezekiel, uh, where the glory of God departed from the temple as a sign of God's judgment on his people. But this wasn't just a sign of judgment. It was also a sign of grace. As God was tearing this curtain in the temple, yes, he was... He was, he, was, uh, he was indicating the uh, destruction of part of the, the temple, and it, it, would, it would foreshadow the ultimate destruction that would come on the temple in just a few years. But he was also destroying the barrier that stood between sinful humans and a holy God. Because, yes, there might have been a symbolic exiting of God from the temple, but also in the death of Jesus, by tearing this curtain, what Jesus was doing was opening up an entrance to the presence of God. Through the death of Jesus that atones for sin, Jesus made a way for us to come into the presence of God. For people from every nation, anywhere, at any time, and any place to come to this God. So these two acts of God were acts of judgment and they were acts of grace. God was at work at the cross. He was proving his justice and his righteousness. And Jesus recognized that God was at work at the cross. Jesus recognized that his sovereign heavenly father was at work. That everything was going according to plan. And so, in verse 46, Jesus could pray this. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As he prayed that to his father, Jesus was quoting Psalm 31, verse 5, which we read earlier. In that psalm, David brought his pain and his suffering to God. He was lamenting. And he asked God for salvation. He asked him for deliverance. He expressed his pain. And, but most importantly, he expressed his trust in God and his dependence on God, saying, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus, at the cross, did not try to vindicate himself. He left it up to God. He committed his very soul to the hands of a God who had proven his justice. He didn't worry for a moment that God didn't have his best interests in mind. He, had, he knew he trusted that his father was gracious. And that he could trust him with his very life. In our pain and in our suffering, we should follow Jesus' example of entrusting our souls to this God. To this just and gracious God. P. 
Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When we experience times of suffering, we often default to trusting in ourselves. We want to ensure justice for ourselves. We are convinced that no one cares as much about me as I care about me. So we want to hold on to control. We want to make things work out for ourselves. But when we do that, when we trust in ourselves, that is a recipe for anxiety, depression, discouragement, because what we will inevitably find out is that we are not as in control as we think we are. Instead of trusting in yourself, trust God. Follow the example of Jesus as he entrusted his soul to the hands of a just and gracious God. We can trust our souls to this God because he has proven time and time again, he has proven that he is just, that what he does is always right. We can entrust our souls to this God because he has proven that he is gracious, that he does have our best interests in mind, not just as much as we do, but far more than we do. And nowhere did he prove his justice and his grace more than at this very moment in the death of Jesus as he sent his own son so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus. So we may be sick or we may be well. We may live or we may die. But we can trust this God with our very souls because he has proven time and time again that he is just and he is gracious and he took the worst evil and the greatest suffering imaginable and used it to accomplish the greatest good ever in the history of the universe. You can trust your soul to this God. So rest In the hands of the just and gracious God. And second, rest in the death of the innocent one. Rest in the death of the innocent one. What follows after the moment of Jesus' death in this passage are various reactions to Jesus' death. First, in verse 47, we see the reaction of the centurion. The centurion who commanded 100 soldiers had overseen the torture of Jesus. He had overseen the crucifixion of Jesus. And in that process, he had seen Jesus' humility. He had had seen Jesus pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He had seen Jesus remain silent in the face of mocks and ridicules. He had seen Jesus promise paradise to the thief next to him he had seen the noontime turn into darkness and how does he react to all this what's his response he glorifies god he says surely this man was innocent 
innocence has been a major theme in Luke 23. In this whole chapter, it comes up multiple times. In verse 4, after Pilate questions Jesus, he determines that Jesus is innocent. Then in verse 14, Pilate tells the Jewish leaders that he found nothing wrong with Jesus. He tells them in verse 15 that Herod also had seen that Jesus was innocent, that he had done nothing wrong. And then in the end of verse 15, again, Pilate repeats that there is nothing, uh, that um, he had done nothing deserving death. Then in verse 22, as the people asked Pilate to turn over a murderer, Barabbas, instead of Jesus, and to put Jesus to death, Pilate again, he, he asked, why? This man hasn't done anything wrong. He again attests to Jesus' innocence. But of course, he still put Jesus to death. He did hand over Barabbas to them. And this innocent man, Jesus, was put to death. And he received a criminal's execution. But even in the moment of his death, his innocence was attested to again. As that thief who hung next to him said, this man has done nothing wrong. So by the time we get to the centurion's confession, the centurion gives the seventh, uh, the seventh instance of proclaiming Jesus' innocence here in this chapter about Jesus' death. Jesus, the innocent one, died a criminal's death. And it leads the centurion to glorify God for this incredible act. In verse 48, then, we see the reaction of the crowds. We're told that these people who had assembled, as they returned home, they, re- they returned home beating their breasts. This is a symbol, a physical expression of grief. It's a physical expression of regret. There may even be in here a sense of repentance in their hearts. Luke uses the same expression in chapter 18 and verse 13, where Jesus tells the parable of a tax collector who was repentant and grieving over his sin. And he, it says that he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then in verse 49, we see the reaction of all of Jesus' acquaintances and the women who came with him from Galilee. It says that they, they stood at a distance. Uh, it, it seems that for the most part, uh, the people who were closest to Jesus were, were the furthest away from the cross, with some exceptions, and that those who weren't as connected to Jesus were closer in watching. And it may be that what Luke had in mind as he recorded this was a psalm, another psalm of lamentations, uh, a psalm of lamentation that, um, uh, like Psalm 38, verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Again, we see Jesus' death fulfilling Scripture. Well, so we see all of these reactions to the death of Jesus. These responses to this innocent man being killed. And all of these reactions should prompt us to ask this question. How will you respond to the death of the innocent one? How will you respond to the cross of Jesus? This is a death that demands a response. We can't just look at this, hear this, and then move on. It demands a response. And the fact of the matter is, we will respond one way or another. As we see 
the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, who became, who took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. And yet, even though he was innocent, he died a criminal's death as one who was guilty. When we see this incredible thing that has taken place, this thing that uh, by human standards should never have happened, it should call us to response. And either we will trust in this Jesus, recognizing that he was innocent and he died for the guilty, or we will continue to trust in ourselves and go down the path that led us to being guilty ones ourselves from the beginning. I would urge you to look at the cross of Jesus. Look at the death of Jesus. And may you have that same grief over sin. That grief and brokenness and regret over the sin that you have committed that hung Jesus on that cross. May you see the innocent one dying a criminal's death. And may you respond by glorifying God just like the centurion, recognizing that this man was innocent and that he died for you. My prayer is that you would respond to the cross of Jesus by placing your faith in Jesus as your substitute. You can do this today. Rest in the death of the innocent one. Because the Bible tells us that we are all sinners We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before God. But because Jesus, the innocent one, died in the place of sinners, if we place our faith in him, if we let go of living for ourselves, if we let go for working to make ourselves right with God, if we let go of the sin uh, that we have been clinging to, and we accept Jesus' free gift of salvation, we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can know this just and gracious God that we have been talking about. And so I would urge you, respond to the death of the innocent one today by resting in what he did for you on that cross. Rest in the hands of the just and gracious God. Rest in the death of the innocent one. And finally, rest in the burial of Jesus. The rest of this chapter, starting in verse 50, records Jesus' burial, the circumstances surrounding it. We're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, who we're told was part of the Jewish council, the council that had put that it had decided to put Jesus to death. But Joseph, we're told, was in the minority on the council who did not want to make this decision to put Jesus to death. He was a man who was righteous. He was a good man. But not only was he a man of character, he was also a man of faith. Now, we're told that he was looking, he was waiting for the kingdom. He was in a small group of faithful Jewish people who were longing, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for that kingdom to come. Uh, Luke has already introduced us to a couple of these people who are in this group at the very beginning of his gospel. In Luke chapter 2, we're introduced to Simeon and to Anna, who got to meet Jesus uh, when he was uh, an infant. And Joseph is part of the same group who were people of faith, who are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. So Joseph goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. He wants to ensure that Jesus' body 
receives the respect that it deserves. So he's careful to take it down. He's careful to cover it and wrap it in a linen shroud. And he lays the body of Jesus in a tomb that's never been used before. Even though Jesus died a criminal's death, Joseph wanted to make sure that he received the burial that he deserved as the Messiah. Joseph, to have owned a tomb of his own, uh, indicates that he would have been a wealthy man, which reminds us of Isaiah chapter 53 again. We saw last week just how many times Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. Uh, But this moment brings to mind also Isaiah 53 and verse 9. In the first part of that verse, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So we see Joseph take responsibility for burying Jesus. And we are also told in verse 54 that this was the day of preparation. So it was the day before the Sabbath when all of the preparations were being made so that everyone could observe the Sabbath and not work on the next day. And so we're told that these women who had come with Jesus from Galilee, uh, they made sure and they, 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 they watched what Joseph was doing. They followed him to the tomb. They saw where the tomb was. They knew where to come back to it when they needed to. Um, they uh, decided to prepare these spices and ointments uh, to anoint Jesus' body. Uh, But because it was really close to the Sabbath, they decided not to do it that day, uh, but to wait and to rest on the Sabbath. And then the first chance that they got, they were going to return to this tomb that they had seen with their eyes, that they had watched. And they were going to return and take these ointments and these spices to the body of Jesus. Uh, The next opportunity they would have would be on the first day of the week at early dawn. And that's when they would take these spices and ointments, or so they thought. We'll see more about that next week. But as we look at the burial of Jesus, you know, we see that Luke and all of the other gospel writers go to great length in terms of the details of Jesus' burial. They go to great length to describe these details and and all of the little things that were going on at the time of Jesus' burial. And not only do they go into great detail, but also I would just uh, remind you that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that Jesus' burial is one of those things that is of first importance. Now, why is that? Why did they go to such great lengths? Why is it that Paul includes that? Why, why didn't Paul just say Jesus' death and resurrection are of first importance? Why did he specifically include that Jesus' burial is of first importance as well? Well, the first reason is because Jesus' burial confirms that Jesus really did die. All of these details, all of these things that went into the burial of Jesus, uh, this is something that you only do for a dead body, a corpse. So Jesus really did die. And because Jesus really did die, he really did rise again. He really was resurrected because he really was dead in the first place. Jesus wasn't in a coma. Jesus' disciples weren't under a delusion. Jesus really did die, and he really was buried. And that is of first importance. But not only is that a reason why Jesus' burial is so important. The second reason why Jesus' burial is so important is that because Jesus was buried, you and I can be buried with him. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. 
Now, um, being buried may not be at the top of your list of the things that you think you need from Jesus, uh, but I want you to see what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Your old self can be buried. Your sin can be buried. Your shame and your regret can be buried. Your slavery to unrighteousness and sin can be buried. If you've never trusted in Jesus, this is something that is available to you today. Your old self, your old ways, that regret that you hang on to can be buried and gone. And if you have trusted in Jesus, you need to remember that you were buried with him. Your old self was buried. Remember your baptism. Remember that moment that you went down into that water. It was a symbol of how your old self was buried with Christ. So when you feel that weight of regret that you just can't shake, remember you were buried with Christ. When you feel that shame and you feel weighed down and, and those accusations come as you remember your past and you feel like you just can't shake that past of who you used to be, remember you were buried with Christ. If you're still struggling with sin, if you're still delighting in sin and engaging in sin, remember, that's not who you are anymore. That person was buried with Christ. So keep that person in the ground. Don't be a grave digger. Don't pull up your old self and live in the sinful ways that were buried with Christ. Live in the freedom and the newness of life that Jesus has purchased for you through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Rest in the burial of Jesus. I pray this morning that you've heard a clear invitation, just as we sang a moment ago, to come to Jesus and rest. To rest in the hands of a gracious and just God. To rest in the death of the innocent one in your place and to rest in the burial of Jesus through which we also can have our old self and our shame, our regret and our past buried and gone. So may we not keep working for ourselves. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for what you did how you were at work at the cross of Jesus to pour your judgment out on Jesus and to provide a gift of grace for all who would receive Jesus. Lord, in Christ, we can be buried. 
our old self, our past, our sin, our shame can be buried. And we can have a new, clean, fresh start in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that those who are listening to this and watching this this morning would trust in that reality, that they would find rest in the gospel. For those who have never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they would find rest for their souls for the very first time. And Lord, for those who are walking with Jesus but are weighed down or still working for themselves, Lord, I pray that they would rest in the reality that Jesus has purchased for them. Lord, you are a good God. And as we continue to celebrate this holy week, I pray that you would every day remind our hearts of just what you did in that week, that sacred week, uh, the week where Jesus did the work so we could rest. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.